Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Memphis, a weekly conversation exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. Each episode, we will take you to the heart of the city. The Heart of Memphis is brought to you by a partnership between Lux Creative and Lindenwood Christian Church. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Heart of Memphis. We want to thank you for taking the time to download this conversation. If you haven't yet, we want to encourage you to subscribe on your podcasting app of choice. We are on all of them, and you can always track us down on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And if you like the stories that you're hearing, feel free to share it. Pass these conversations along because we think we have some compelling stories about The Heart of Memphis that are worth sharing. We are excited to welcome our latest guest today, the pastor, the doctor, Kenneth Whalem from the New Olivet Worship Center. Pastor, welcome today. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Pastor Jeff, thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. We are always um, putting out a flyer to say, hey, we need some vital voices in the city to come and share with us. And let's just say your name came up a few times. So we are grateful for your presence. Well, we'll see if that was a good, <laughs> with good advice or not. <laughs> I'll do my best. I know you will. I know that you will. Well, we always like to start at the very beginning. Um, track you down on social media. Make sure I get this right. Memphis born, Memphis bred. When I die, I'll be Memphis dead. Absolutely, man. And that's why I wear my Memphis Maine shirt uh, to let the world know that um, no matter where I have been, no matter where I go, Memphis is always in my heart, speaking of the heart of Memphis. And um, so that's me, man. I'm, I'm unashamedly a Memphis man. So you were born and grew up right here in the city. Where, 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 are, your, where are your roots here in the 901? Orange Mound. Um, was born in 1956. Um, was a seminal moment in my life was uh, April 4th, 1968, when Dr. King was assassinated. Uh, I was a latchkey kid. My brother and I were latchkey kids. And... Um, I was at home watching the news when I saw the announcement about Dr. King. And somehow, for some reason, as a 12-year-old boy, I don't know why, man, I said, well, I want to be a lawyer so that I can help Dr. King. I want to help him, even though the announcer says he's dead. And that's when I the wheels started rolling, man. and. I, you know, I decided I wanted to do something for Dr. King. I decided that I owed him, that Memphis owed him. Uh, and I, every time you would see Dr. King on television, most times he would be flanked by lawyers. These black men, Thurgood Marshall, uh, Russell Sugarman uh, here in Memphis, A.W. Willis, these men were so dignified looking and so they were always dressed, natalie dressed and just very o official looking. And that's what I wanted. As a little black boy, I'm seeing these black men. I knew they were lawyers. I decided that's what I wanted to do. So that's in a nutshell, those are my roots. So from the age 12 until you began to explore your call and figure out what's next, what, what path did that put you on for you know going to high school, looking at higher education? Because you can't just jump from being a 12-year-old boy, I want to be a lawyer, to the, to the platform that you have now. What got that started for well, you? Well, of course, about four years later, maybe 
two or three years later is when busing kicked in uh, in Memphis. I mean, busing for real, the kind of busing that would uh, take you 10 miles away from your home when your school is <laughs> literally next door. Uh, so, so that's what happened. We um, were, or I was bused to a school called Sherwood Junior High School. That's when they were calling them junior high schools. And uh, that's when I had my first experience uh, with white people, uh, white friends, white enemies. Uh, and, and that was the experience that, I, that nurtured my outlook, my perspective, how I saw the world in terms of race relations. Uh, and so I developed a, a healthy um, ability to articulate and still sort of get an understanding of what other people are coming from. So that kind of laid a foundation for a legal experience. After that, I went to Messick High School, which was a predominantly white high school. Um, was one of the best students, man. I was on a drill team in ROTC, straight A's, you know, just in line. And uh, then went to Melrose High School in 11th grade, which is in the heart of Orange Mountain. And that's where I sold my wild oats <laughs> with these fine black girls and these, you know, this, you know, it just, that's the way it was. It's where I smoked my first joint uh, at Melrose. It's where I first cut class, you know, the whole deal. So that informed my relations with my people. Um, so that was good for me. Left there, went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. It's an interesting, interesting story that we may be able to get to. Then to Temple University School of Law in Philadelphia. I did well, graduated uh, cum laude. Uh, you know, was on my way to being the black Perry Mason. <laughs> well, something interesting happening on the way. Um, God began to say, okay, now you're ready to preach. I'm like, I'm ready to preach? You're kidding. Uh, my dad spent all this money for me to go to Morehouse College and Temple Law School, certainly you're making a mistake. My name is Kenneth Jr. I'm saying to God, you mean my dad. That's my dad. That's the Kenneth you really want, and he's already a preacher. So, you know, I put him on hold, and um, funny thing happened. In order to become a lawyer, you have to pass the bar examination, as you know. I couldn't. Took it, I don't know how many times. I took it more times than I can remember, literally and couldn't pass it. On the last time I took it, maybe the 10th or 11th time, by this time I was a deacon in my dad's church, and the news used to come out on Sunday. And we would always, my wife and I would always go to Commercial Appeal, office down on Union, buy a newspaper out of the machine, open it up quickly, and see if my name is among those who passed the bar exam. Once more, no Kenneth Whalum Jr. Went to church during service, man. I've never done this. I literally went to the altar and literally fell on my face and started wailing. I mean, blood-curdling wailing. God, what am I going to do? I have a wife. I have a baby. What am I going to do? And that's when he said, are you ready? <laughs> are you ready now? I'm like, yeah. So there, I'm sorry, long no, story. In a we love journey. long stories, yes. <laughs> Every preacher I know has their own Jonah journey. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, no, thank you. I, you, you. This was sent to the wrong inbox. I'm, I'm No, I had my own plan. I had my own path. Uh, you referenced, you know, obviously going to an amazing institution like Morehouse. You said, well, maybe we can get into that. Let's get into that. Yeah. Uh, Morehouse, as you know, is uh, HBCU is a historically um, successful HBCU all male. No women at Morehouse. Morehouse is right across the street from Spelman College, which is all female. Uh, just a fabulous, fabulous experience. Why did I want to go to Morehouse? Well, it had to do with Dr. King. Dr. King graduated from Morehouse. My Uncle Wendell graduated from Morehouse. My Uncle Harold graduated from Morehouse. My Uncle Wendell, at the time, was the chairman of the music department at Morehouse. At Dr. King's funeral, the Morehouse College Glee Club sang, We Shall Overcome, with my uncle directing. That same Glee Club had come to Memphis when I was a little boy, maybe 13, and done a concert. And they were so excellent. And the way they come in, Jeff, they still do this. When the Glee Club comes to town, they're not on stage at the beginning of the concert. The audience is there, packed in their seats. And then you hear this rumbling. It's feet, feet, feet. You know it's feet. You know, you wonder what's going on. Then you look, and the glee club is coming down all the aisles, coming from the side of the church and, and coming up to the choir stand, almost running. And then they, when they get to the choir stand and get assembled, they're perfectly still and quiet. And when I saw that man, I said, I'm going to that school because I want to sing in that group, and I want to be like that. So all those things came together, and that's how I got to Morehouse. Morehouse to Temple to struggle with the bar exam, to face down on the altar. Absolutely. Where does God take you from there? He takes me through a journey of focus. Focus, man. Focus. Focus on your wife. Focus on your babies. Focus on your ministry. Focus. You're ready. You know why you're ready? This is what the Spirit is telling me. You can read Because of your law degree and because of your English degree at Morehouse, you can read, you can write, but most importantly, you can argue. You can argue all sides of an issue. You can, you know, when you're preaching a sermon, you know what the people are thinking. (laughs) When you're trying to push a message, you know that the other side is saying, what if? And then you you can unpack the what if. And then you can put it all back together and you can say, now let's reason. Here you go. And that's how that played, man. And I'm still doing it, man. I am still doing the same thing. You got to do the research. You got you to gotta go deeper. You got to argue. You got to sometimes argue when you think you might be wrong. But you got to lay it out there. And that's where it is, man. So you referenced when we were meeting in the parking lot to come up the steps and record that you had studied at Memphis Theological Seminary right That's across right. the street. We had um, MTS President Jody Hill on a couple of yeah, months man. ago. I don't know if you've had a chance He's to a meet firecracker, him. He is a firecracker. <laughs> hey, Jody is the right name for him, man. I don't know why they named him Jody or, or if that's his nickname, yeah. but Jody fits him, man. It does, and he seems to be a pretty good fit for, for the seminary. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He's exciting. He's 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 desirous of doing new stuff. Yes. 
uh, while still holding to the best tradition. So I, I appreciate that. I, I really respect him, and he can smile and slap you on the back and ask you for ten grand all in the Absolutely. same conversation. I gave him one, but that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> wait, let's wait, you know. So you do study at MTS. You said that was a, a long journey of theological study and exploration to earn your degree there. What, what's going on while you're uh, bivocational? You're working in the church. You're going to MTS. How is that journey preparing you for the, for the larger platform that, that you have today as a leader of faith in the city of Memphis? Well, during that time, man, my father, as I said earlier, was the pastor of Olivet. I was a deacon, and then I accepted the call to preach. Eventually, after spending 10 years in Arkansas, I pastored in Arkansas for 10 years in Crittenden County, Sunset, Arkansas population 500. And uh, in the 10th year of my pastorate, my father called my wife, didn't call me, he called my wife and said, do you think Kenneth would be interested in coming back to Olivet to help out? She said, I'll talk to him. And then, I, so that's when I made the decision to come back and help my dad. Funny thing happened, he turned all teaching responsibilities over to me. So I was teaching Bible study. I taught Bible study for four years. And then he decided that he would retire and turn the church over to me. Well, the people who loved him and were put off by my kind of unorthodox teaching style um, my embrace of culture, young people. Uh, I began to encourage the young people to come to the altar and dance. I mean, really dance. I don't, I mean, whatever the popular dances were, stanky leg, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is y'all do, let's do it. Let's do it together. We've always had a slamming band at Olivet. I mean, it's always been one of the best in the world. And so the people who loved my dad and who had grown up in a traditional type setting, they didn't appreciate that, Jeff. Mm -hmm. And um, they didn't appreciate that, Jeff. <laughs> and, and so eventually they decided that they weren't going to go along with this. We're not going to let you be the pastor of this church. You got to get out of here. We're going to put you out of here. And they organized an effort to put me out. I wish I were the only person with this kind of story. You are not. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's what happened. One Sunday morning, I mean, they planned it for a long time. It was, it was unbelievable. I can smile about it now. Okay. But, uh, man, one Sunday morning, June 4th, 2000, they um, came to the front of the church, just in the middle of the church, and said, we declare the pulpit vacant. Can you imagine this? I'm like, okay. Here's a funny thing. This microphone right here, here's a funny thing, and this is advice for anybody in your audience who might be planning a coup at a church. First, make sure the pastor doesn't have the microphone. You got to, don't let the pastor keep the microphone if you're trying to put the pastor <laughs> out. First thing you got to do is turn the mic off or something. And I'm in the pulpit with the people who I've been teaching for four years now. So, I'm, I'm in charge of the service. So I said, oh, 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 okay. All right. What, what, you got anything else to say? No. Okay. I said, let's take a vote. All in favor, 
of the pulpit being declared vacant, signify by saying amen. About 40 people, amen. I said, all right, all opposed, signify by saying amen. The whole church, amen. So I said, the vote fails. Choir, let's sing. And the people who wanted to put me out left. You need to teach that course at Memphis Theological Seminary. I've been trying, man. They won't let that me do it. It's amazing. <laughs> that is a. First of all, that is public relations 101. You just keep you just keep talking. Yeah, yeah. And in a good way. And don't let a moment slip by. I, I appreciate that. And you've gone right to the core of congregational dynamics that there are times that leaders think they understand the people better than pastors understand their people. Pastors got their finger on the pulse of everything. They know the guy that's drinking too much that nobody else knows about. They know the couple that's having problems that smiles every time they come in with their pretty kids. And they have a good pastors can get a sniff of anxiety just a mile away and be like, you know, something's coming up here. And everybody's like, oh, no, everything's fine. You obviously understood your people. Mm-hmm. And that comes from knowing God. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's not just a skill you develop at a continuing ed event. That comes mm-hmm. from walking closely with the Lord. Mm-hmm. So I just want to honor that and say I, I, I don't think I could pull that off and hope I'm not in that spot. But I, I, I hope I pulled it off for all of the rest of the people that's who right. just following me. That's hurt, man. So that's that pain. clearly is going to bring some change to the church. Absolutely. If those that thought they were in control walk out, the, uh, it was a failed coup. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a failed coup. How did that renew your church? What, what did it do to, to, to change the witness of your church from – what I'm hearing is kind of a generational conflict. No doubt. How, how, how did, what doors swung open for you with that? Well, our church is the only, I know it's the only black church that has its own credit union, nationally regulated. It's a banking institution. So one of the other things that happened, and this is important, is the people who tried to put me out also withdrew their accounts from the credit union in an effort to disable the credit union and cause us a lot of trouble with the state, with the federal government. Interesting thing happened that not all of the older people were against me. In fact, the treasurer of the church was in my corner. Very important deacons were in my corner who had been at the church for a long time. So what they did was they moved their existing bank accounts in NBC and First Tennessee and Tri-State Bank, they moved all of them to our credit union so that the credit union could be fiscally strong to survive whatever else might happen. That was a very important thing. That, speaking of opening doors, that opened the doors to an understanding among our members of just how important the church is, not just in religious matters, but in education, in finance, that opened the door to a lot of people who, they loved me, but they began to appreciate the kinds of things that we did. What it also did, Jeff, is it, at the height of the attempted coup, it could have gone either way. I said something like, okay, let's just pray. Let's pray. I said, if if you believe I am sent from the devil, if you think I'm the devil himself, let's all pray that God strike me dead right now. 
Come on. Let's put it on the table. Well, at a moment when people were fearful, anxious, people were crying, man, you wouldn't believe it. And families walking out, men and women just boohoo and sobbing. At that moment, my wife, who was a beautiful woman, demure, uh, very, very uh, feminine, uh, just she's my she's my ace and oh she's my that's it you know that she stands up Jeff and stands on a pew she stands up on a pew and says I want to say something so we give it a mic and she begins to say how could you I know this man this man has prayed for you this man man when my wife got through all of the wives had stood. Bruh, when the wives are with you, it's all good, man. That's it's gonna right. Be, it's going to be all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, the, it is. The door that opened was that the families, man, the married couples came together and said, we're with you. Whatever you want to do, we got you said that one of the things that came from this is you understood the church is bigger, that people began to understand the church is bigger than the worship service. Church is bigger than Bible study. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a societal force Absolutely. that God has chosen to use. You know, you have a, a ministry that is, has led you to a, a vocal witness around education. You know, I, 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 your Twitter account, I'm going to tell everybody, you need to go follow that. Follow at K. Whalem, man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, more cops, less schools. Why is that so? That's I think that was from a couple Absolutely. days ago. Yeah. So t talk to me. Let's 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 talk about education. You were it's served on the school board. Is that correct? Yes, for two terms. For two terms. Mm -hmm. What does the church have to say to public education in Memphis? Well, interestingly, my politics were really honed at MTS. My missions professor named Paul Descartes, Paul Descartes, D-E-K-A-R. Man, he used to challenge us so much. He would say, now, I know this is not original with him. I know it's been said by 100 million people over the years of life. But, man, we were sitting in class one night, and I heard this man say, I heard him in my spirit, I heard him say, what good is the church? if the church can't change the world. He said, what good is it if we don't use our resources to make a difference out there in the world? Man, like I said, I know hundreds of million people said it, but I heard that thing in my spirit that night, man. And that's why I began to look at politics as something not to use me, but that I could use. And that's how I got involved in politics. That's how I got involved in education, with the school board. What better way to be a blessing than to make sure children learn how to use their head, man? What better way? That's why I got involved. And I don't care whether it's public schools, private schools, at home. Who cares, man? Education is the best way for a poor kid to get out of poverty. That's why I wrote my first book, which was Hip Hop Is Not Our Enemy. And man, oh, that's, we need another show to talk about the blowback <laughs> I got from that. But my point is this. I don't care how you get out of poverty. Get out of it. Get out of, who cares how you get out? 
I used to say this is one of the things that would upset the traditional people at my church. I would be in the pulpit and I say, pimps, players, hustlers, thugs, shouters that strip for a living and cats that slang drugs, Jesus died for you. Now come on, let's dance. <laughs> well, it's true. It is true. They they called him a wine bibber. They called him a drunk. Why? Because he hung with the drunks. That's why. That's how I got how I am, man. And that's how I'm going to get where I'm going. Well, tell us a little bit more about your congregation. Tell me a little more about New Olivet Worship Center. You had been um, in on Southern for right. years and mm-hmm. have relocated to a Cordova. Tell us about that transition, and what are, what are two of the defining characteristics of your church that make it a Memphis church? All right, how do we get to Woodland Hills? Well, as you know, or you may not know, our address on Southern was 3084 Southern Avenue, which is right next door to Memphis Country Club. In fact, Memphis Country Club literally, I'm not figuratively, Memphis Country Club literally surrounds the church property. Literally. If we were going to grow at all, it was going to have to be out into Southern Avenue, which you can't do. You can't set up chairs in the middle of Southern Avenue. So for years, we had been landlocked on one acre of land. Well, not long after I became pastor, of course, man, when a young guy comes in, you know, it's, it's, people talk about it all over town, and I was a firebrand, you know, I was the kind of preacher that would, you know, you know, it, it's what black people love. So, so man, it got to the point, Jeff, where we were putting chairs down on Sundays. The overflow was awesome. We would have to put a TV monitor in the choir room, a TV monitor in the fellowship hall. Man, it was, it was off the chain for a while. <laughs> Until I started saying, like, I would be in the pulpit and I'd say, you know, people ought to know who your wife is. Why is it that you're a deacon and people don't know who your wife is? And she's right there on the other side of the church. Can't do that. Uh, Why is it that you hang with sister so-and-so more than you hang with sister so You can't do that. And by the way, where's your wedding ring? I would say this kind of stuff from the pulpit, man. That didn't go over too well, (laughs) man. With the adulterers. and You know what I'm saying? I do. So that's, you know, that's. So anyway, so I, I said that to say, at, at a time when cars were everywhere, people were parking on Memphis Country Club's property because they couldn't find anywhere to park well, Memphis Country Club Board of Directors called me, wanted to meet, have lunch. I said, fine. So during lunch, one of the, I think it was the president of the board said, Pastor, we notice you're really, really growing so fast, and I tell you, man, you you you're gonna need to you gonna need some new space soon, so if you ever get to the point where you, you feel like you, you need to move, please give us first right of refusal on buying your property. And I said just off the top of my head, you know I was getting ready to say the same thing to you. <laughs> and they did exactly what you just did, man. They rolled laughing. They couldn't believe <laughs> what the what the, huh. <laughs> so, so we fin- needless to say, we finished lunch. They knew I wasn't interested. But I had planted the seed with them that I was somebody you're going to have to deal with one way or another. So some years later, we couldn't grow. 
And I contacted them. I said, y'all still interested? And they said, yeah. So they bought us. And now we're on 15 acres of land. We went from one acre to 15 acres, literally overnight. Wow. And the, most of my members lived out in East Memphis anyway. They live in Cordoba, Carnival, anyway. So we actually got closer to them. That's to answer your question, how it's still a Memphis church. Yes. That's, that's it. Well, you have a rich history of music with your family. And so I want you to brag on your family and uh, give us names, give us albums, give, give, oh tell us where goodness. we can track them down. Um, our, our heritage in Memphis, our roots run deep. Uh, my grandfather was a musician his, and a businessman. His name was H.D. Whalem. He had four sons, all of them are musicians. Um, my sons, my brother Kirk is a jazz musician. Kirk literally created the genre of gospel jazz. He literally created it. Um, he's got CDs all over the place, gospel according to jazz CDs. There are four of them. I think he's getting ready to record a fifth one. My, my middle brother, Kevin, is a vocalist. Uh, he is an instructor at Middle Tennessee State University, which is famous for its, its music and recording. My three sons are professional musicians. Kenneth III... Uh, all these guys can be followed on, on social media. Uh, Kenneth III is a, is a solo artist, vocalist, and, and saxophonist. My middle son, Cortland, is a vocalist, has performed in every uh, performance theater in Memphis. He was most recently in the first country musical called May We All at Theater Memphis. Uh, not Theater Memphis, Playhouse on the Square. Uh, my youngest son, Cameron, is the trombonist for Bruno Mars. So I... It, it skipped over me. Uh, you know, I don't play anything that just, I don't know, it just got to, nah, never mind. <laughs> and he, he, he went straight from my, my grandparents, my dad, and straight to my sons. But that, that's what that is. Straight to your boys. Yeah. <laughs> well, you had referenced a book you had written, but you have, um, sitting here on the table, you have a book that you'd shared with me, God is Addicted to Worship and I Am His Supplier why your worship isn't working. Tell us about this book. Man, in time, I want you to examine that cover, the art on the cover. We don't have to talk about it right now, but it explains why that's the, the title. When I was at MTS, again, another MTS anecdote, I had to do a research deal on worship. And Jeff, there were no books on worship in that library. Maybe there are now. It's been 20, 30 years. And it hurt me, man. I wanted to know. I really wanted to do the academic research. What is worship? There was a lot of stuff on worship music, a lot of stuff on people's, I don't know, ideas, opinions, but nothing on what true worship really is, man. And John 4, 23, 24 where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and where he says, God is seeking true worshipers. They that worship him must, it was an imperative, he didn't, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Some, for some reason, man, that verse grabbed me. And I said, what does he mean? What does that mean? I found out, so I wanted to find out. Proskuneo, Greek. 
To worship is to lay prostrate, bow, kneel, and or blow kisses to God in homage and obeisance. Well, that ain't what they taught me worship is. And that still ain't what people teach that worship is. And it just, uh, God gave me that revelation, even though it was right there in the Bible. It wasn't hidden. And then I started saying, well, you know, if you, if you reference the word worship, if, if you do a, a search on it, everywhere in the Bible, every time it says something about worship, somebody's laying on their face. Somebody's bowing on their knee. Somebody's got their face on the ground. It's real clear. Why is it so hard? That's why I wrote the book. And I said, I'm not going to let people say that this is just his opinion. So I did the academic research. I had to, man, my publisher wouldn't, he wouldn't they wouldn't even deal with it if I hadn't had the footnotes, mm -hmm. the end notes, if you will. And it still amazes me that people, it's like they don't hear me. They, they, they keep saying worship and praise. Keep using those terms interchangeably. Yeah. They're not. They're not. They're not the same. But I feel like a voice crying in the wilderness. But that's what God gave me, man. And I'll be doing it. That's why I say I'm his supplier. <laughs> I'll be doing it as long as he wants it. That word seeketh, in, you know this, in the Greek, zeteo, it means to crave mm -hmm. like a junkie. The first title that I proposed, Jeff, was God is a junkie, and I'm his pusher man. <laughs> Some of your listeners cringe just then. So, man, you should have, <laughs> when I told the publishers that that was my title. <laughs> I think I'm seeing the, the through line of a multi-generational coup against you to God is a junkie. And I love it all. I love it all. Yeah, well, that's that's it, man. That, that's the answer to your question. That's the short answer to your question. Well, we always like to wrap up this our conversations with this simple, open-ended question. What is your hope for the city of Memphis, the city that has been home for you forever? What is your hope for this city? My hope, man, is that the clergy, black and white clergy, would receive the revelation of true worship and teach it to their congregants because worship's greatest value is that it consecrates the mind. And if we have consecrated minds, we'll accept full responsibility for why we are where we are and we'll take responsibility for getting us out of what we're in until that happens Everything else is tinkling cymbals and sounding brass. Kenneth, thank you so much for coming on with us at the Heart of Memphis. We appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. I think we could have gone two hours and just start to scratch the surface of the life that you have lived and the ministry that you're engaged in. So I just want to offer my deep gratitude for taking the time to be with us today. Appreciate it, man. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Heart of Memphis, a weekly conversation exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. We think in this episode we went to the heart of the city.